Hello there, everyone. This is Craig from Overdue. I just wanted to let you know that on this week's show, things get a little sexy. Consider this our sexy prelude. Due to the graphic nature of Portnoy's complaint, we decided to put the explicit tag on this week's episode. Uh, It didn't get as bad as we thought, but just for uh, safety's sake, we thought you might want to know that language is a little dirtier than usual, and some of the subject matter we cover is a little grosser than usual. So you may want to exercise some judgment uh, in whom you listen to this show with, or maybe where if you tend to listen without headphones. (laughs) Thanks very much for listening, and enjoy the show. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. swear because because <laughs> i'm really feeling it okay well we said in our in our sexy prelude that we were gonna swear do you need to swear right now sexy prelude well hopefully we sang that a whole bunch of times what did you what do you need to swear about do you need to swear I about n- nebraska i mean i always need to swear about nebraska <laughs> let's not let's not mince words i'm like i get married in two and a half months yeah yeah, you do, and we're yeah. like we're deep into it. Like yeah. I, I, and I, I, we've talked before. I think in passing about wedding stuff, and I want to emphasize that I'm super happy to get married to but... Susanna, who I'm getting married to. But we are we are way far past the fun part, like the part where you're like tasting cake and stuff. Months ago, <laughs> oh, but that cake's stale now. I mean, we ate it all. Like, it's all gone. So and there's we're, no we're cake gonna get, for the rest of us. We're going to get a new cake. How do you know it's going to taste the same? It's because the same person is making it. Oh, I, I but what if he's, she... like, sad on the day of your wedding and the cake okay. tastes sad? One, it's a woman, so way to be sexist. And two, we're just going to have to take that chance. And that that's, like, that's what I wanted to talk about. Because up until now, everything has been about planning and about... I don't know about moving one step forward and just, you know, you know, keeping the ball rolling. And now it's gotten to the point where it's like, okay, it's time to make a decision. And then once we make the decision, it's, it's made and we have to live with it forever. (laughs) Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And sometimes we just need to talk about our feelings. Sometimes we bought wedding bands this weekend. Wedding bands. Yes. Which like, is distinct from the engagement ring. Wait. It's the, it's the ring. It's the second ring that she's going to wear. And it's the one ring that I'll actually wear. The one, okay. ring, to, the one ring to rule us all. So here's if something you will. I don't really. <laughs> <laughs> the one ring to bind us. Uh, so here's something that I only vaguely understand. Which ring is supposed to be fancier. Which ring is supposed to be the um, engagement so ring fancy. is traditionally fancier. And that's the one that they wear for all, forever and say that's this the one is that so Susanna's pretty. That's been wearing for the last month and a half, yeah, and be like everybody look at my rock. I mean married people. Like is the wedding ring 
the fancy ring that they wear? Women, I guess. No, well, women. Who can who can say? Not as many men wear Number like one. diamond wedding bands. That's all I'm saying. Um, I think the fancy diamondy ring is traditionally the engagement ring, and then you get a second wedding band to like pair with it. And so when we when we went and picked out stuff, um, we you know you have to pay attention not just to what she likes, but also to what went well with her first ring. Ah uh, yes, and so I think like she got a little like a white gold band with very small diamonds. Like, and this is one of the, the many of decisions that you had to make that yeah, you're just gonna no, live with to, now. Have to make a lot of decisions. It's like I don't know. Like I'm trying to think of what what a good analogy would be, and it's just like is there is there anything where you like train? something or you train yourself or you like you work up to something for months and months and months and you let it go and you just have to hope that everything goes okay you know what that is andrew what is that it's parenthood (laughs) (laughs) wedding is just training wheels for parenthood think about that you just blew my mind like my mind is blown it's done now i can't Talk about books. Well, on the, the, on the subject the of uh, on the subject of wedding and wives, I feel like we before we dive into this week's book, which is Portnoy's Complaint by Philip Roth. Uh, I know we wanted to talk briefly about last week's book, Pride and Prejudice, because every week we say, "Hey, everybody, tell us what you thought about all those things we said." And, and sometimes you, you tell us what you think. Sometimes people tell us what they think, and they're maybe writer than us. Uh, or perhaps not recording a podcast at the time that they're having the thoughts that we had. I mean, maybe they are. I don't even. Oh, it's, don't it's, that would be very impressive because some of these people are pretty articulate. Uh, so I know we got some some responses to one of the fir- biggest responses was that we did not uh, treat that first line of Pride and Prejudice as as enough of a satirical joke. Well, yeah, I want. I want the main thing that I want to address, I guess, about our Pride and Prejudice episode is that I think we spent we spent a lot of time talking about the characters. We spent a lot of time in the characters' heads, but I don't think we spent enough time talking about how Austin felt about the way about the stuff that she was writing about. That's fair. About, yeah, like the institution of marriage in the time that she was writing about it. And um, so we got a couple of messages and I'm, I'm trying to pull one up now, but I just don't I apparently understand how Facebook works. Do you want the the one from Holly? I want the Yeah, the message. That we, can you just can you just read that? Yeah, I got it. I got it. All right. Uh, oh, you want me to read the whole thing? Just read the most relevant part, I guess. OK. Make that snap judgment right now. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, so Holly is a friend of Eric, a longtime listener of the show. Uh, and I want to thank him for passing our episode along, which is a great way to spread the word about the show. And then if you have opinions about us, we'll share them on air. Yeah, um, come on. Bring so it. Holly is a big Austin fan, and she... A Janeite, a, if you will. Well, she didn't use the word Janeite, but maybe she is. Um, and she wanted to say that she generally enjoyed the show, but she got irked a couple times. 
specifically when readers, and uh, usually male readers, she says, mock or slightly deride Austen's books as too preoccupied with marriage and or romance. They groan, oh, why are these women so preoccupied with marriage? Well, because men have spent centuries suppressing and conditioning women to believe that that is their only purpose in life. Uh, wife and mother is what women are trained to be, especially the women of the genteel class who are particularly confined to narrow circumstances. Uh, a little further on, they had no way of forging a career or carving out their own life. Women were almost always dependent upon a man, uh, where they and marriage was the key to what kind of life they could lead, where they could go, who they could see, etc. And sometimes a marriage truly meant salvation from destitution. In Pride and Prejudice, the family is not rich, and when the father dies, they lose the estate. Without good husbands, the Bennett girls could literally be homeless and destitute. Uh, she says that Austin treats serious things with a light satirical touch, so I understand why people might see it as a little fluffy. Uh, the stuff of these books, however, is not fluff. It's these women's lives, which might also say something about the tendency for some men to push women into a box, then dismiss the box. Well played, <laughs> Holly. <laughs> yeah, no, that was that's brutal like just cutting us to the quick i i want to say that it was never i mean absolutely it was never our intent to to say oh these silly women they're so preoccupied with marriage oh look at these look at these silly ladies being you know fitting into their society oh that's so that's so dumb <laughs> um I think it's, I mean, I think it's, and we touched upon this in the show, but I think it's really clear in the, in Pride and Prejudice itself, how Austin herself feels about marriage, because the characters in Pride and Prejudice who are the most preoccupied with marriage are the most, like the, the most obviously dumb people, I guess. Yeah, I, mean, I guess we'll say we'll just we'll like Mrs. Bennett for one. Like w- like we talked in the episode about how when uh when her daughter ran off with this scallywag, this shyster guy, mm-hmm. like she was not worried for her daughter in in like she was not worried that her daughter was going to end up end up like murdered in some alley or something. She was worried that her daughter was going to be with a guy and not married. And as soon as it became clear that they were going to be married, even though, it, you know, even though blackmail was involved, even though they only got married because because uh, Darcy agreed to pay their debts. Like she was still it was her like her first daughter to be married. And so she was still over the moon about it. And it, like that kind of stuff seems to me to be like obviously critical of people who see marriage as the be all end all of well, I, of I like women's lives. I don't know. I don't know as you have to be or Austin would have to be critical of those people as much as she would be critical of the system is my take on it. The system that drives people to do this kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah. not and not to say that the system is not made up of people, but but many a times it becomes larger than individuals themselves. Mm. No, absolutely. And so what you're what she's doing by putting someone like Mrs. Bennett in the book and allowing us a, a character to kind of poke fun at is the double standard of marriage where it's, you know, being with a man is a terrible thing until it's marriage. Um, and pointing out having that feel ludicrous, right? Like eliciting the reaction you're having to Mrs. Bennett to <laughs> allow us to re-examine what marriage is and, and what marriage should be. Um, 
And I think that's something that we didn't necessarily dive into as much as we, we talked a little bit about Austin and how she never married and, and how that might've informed her views on it. But um, there are books written and books to be written on why and how people got married right. in that era. You know, I mean, I think I, in our, in our conversation about the book, I think we implied a lot of things and we kind of danced around a lot of things that, you know, because you and I are, are white, dudes and you know this is something that we kind of wrestle with a lot on the show is because you and i are innately privileged in a way that a Mm -hmm. lot of people aren't privileged like even if we are coming at something without thinking about that privilege or i don't i don't know do you do you know what i mean like like we can talk about something like austin and because we don't mention explicitly maybe how Austin is treating these characters who feel this way. Like it's, we're not making it clear how we feel about it. Yeah. That doesn't, that doesn't excuse us for not making it clear. No, absolutely not. No, 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 no. That's what happens. Yeah. That's, I mean, one thing about the shows, I just, we want it to be really inclusive and we really want to be like, we're, we're reading stuff that is, outside of our wheelhouse i think and and we do that on purpose because we want to challenge ourselves but we are not i mean we're not literary critics and that's part of what we bring to the show is we're just like we're just guys well that and that's why (laughs) we need listeners to let us know and we're just being guys yeah and and we should have been better than that and even and even if it's not intentional and even if you know all the all the criticism in that post was stuff that you know i was thinking about as i read it and i was thinking about as we talked about it but we didn't make it explicit and so i am sorry about that like i'm we we should have made it clearer where austin stood and like where we stood in relation to that because i do like i was listening to that episode and it does sound a little bit like maybe we're judging these people who are who feel this way about marriage where really they were just the product of a society where marriage was the only way for a woman to get anything or like go anywhere. Well, and, and, and being written at a time for women who, and other readers who did feel that way. You yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. Um, Austin, the social critic often gets wrapped up and muddled with Austin, the sit- satirist, which is sometimes slightly different from social critic and Austin, the romance writer which i think is it's there but as we kind of talked about last week i think the the popular 20th and 21st century view of austin as a romance writer is is just that it it is largely a modern conceit that kind of boxes out a lot of her other virtues as a writer Well, because you look at the stuff that that followed her i think Mm. and Mm -hmm. And I don't know, maybe that like maybe that masks over the circumstance like that that tapes over the circumstances in which she was writing. Like you see you see her influences, but you don't see the, the stuff that she was working around and fighting against in her own time. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. I don't know. We'll have to we'll definitely have to come back to her because I feel like we we owe Jane that. We've read Austin twice, and I think each time we read her, we come a little bit closer to getting her. So yes. <laughs> maybe like the third or the fourth Austin book that we re- re- we read, is like we'll get there. But I did get to blow like a 10-year-old's mind today 
when I told her that Clueless was based on a Jane Austen book. So, in case you didn't know that, <laughs> Clueless was based on Jane Austen's Emma. So, so yeah, that's our that's our thing, and probably we've rambled a little bit, but I just I just want to like whenever we get. And it wasn't even criticism that we got. Just like whenever we get reader notes like that, we really do take it seriously. We really do try at every turn to evaluate our approach to the stuff that we're reading. I mean, especially if it's stuff that's outside of our own sphere of experience, which happens a lot. <laughs> well, that's kind and of the we, point of, of to be reductive. It's the point of a, of a good many novel, right? Yeah is to encounter something or someone outside your own experience, but have it feel like it could have been your experience if you, if it had been you. And that was something we struggled with on, uh, or I struggled with on uh, the James Baldwin. And, and we struggled with before. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the show. Shall we? Yeah. So let's, let's talk about books. You read uh, Philip Roth's point port noise complaint. Yeah, so what, let me just port define Portnoy's complaint for you as the what, book defines What is it. this guy complaining about? Well, Portnoy's complaint as defined by the book is a medical condition named after the main character in the book, which is a disorder in which strongly felt ethical and altruistic impulses are perpetually warring with extreme sexual longings, often of a perverse nature. Dr. Spielvogel says, acts of exhibitionism, voyeurism, fetishism, autoeroticism, and oral coitus are plentiful as a consequence of the patient's, quote, morality. However, neither fantasy nor act nor act issues in genuine sexual gratification, but rather in overriding feelings of shame and the dread of retribution, particularly in the form of castration. So you do something to gratify yourself sexually and then you worry about how bad you are. Yes. And, and what it's going to do to you. It is it is a constant tug of war between so to speak. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. It's a constant episode over. Oh man, it's a constant push and pull. Uh mostly pull. Mostly pull. <laughs> between uh, your moral center and and being a moral a person of good moral standing and wanting to satisfy your sexual urges of whatever uh, persuasion those may be and then the second that those urges are satisfied if they are satisfied at all you feel terrible and crappy about it and it is this this point in the show where I'd like to remind listeners that this the show's gonna get a little raunchy. It's gonna get bawdy. Uh, I think we might even put, we might have already put the explicit tag on this one. So just uh, buckle up, not in the sexual way, but just buckle up. Now just like put some earplugs in your kids' ears and maybe also your own your own ears. <laughs> For whatever reason you were letting kids listen to our ramblings, uh, please stop them right now. Because we're going to talk about jerking it on this show. Like, what are you doing even, like, in the first place? <laughs> I hope you're talking to me. No, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to people with kids. Like, what are... <laughs> Wait, don't, don't judge people for having kids. What are you doing? I'm not judging people for having kids. I'm judging people for having kids and then letting them listen to us. Like, what... No, that's fair. What that's... virtues do you think we're going to teach kids? We just told you that we messed up Jane Austen, so maybe you just let your kids 
go read Jane Austen on their own. Don't let us poison their ears. Uh, so I guess we should talk about Philip Roth first, right? Yeah, hit me. Andrew. What? I've, I've kind what? of tipped the answer to this poll question, but who would you say is the greatest living American writer? Is it is it Philip Roth? Well, I was gonna I was gonna ask your opinion. I shouldn't have even told you who we were talking about today. First, come on. Is it? But it's Philip Roth. Though, it, right? Well, according to <laughs> a Vulture poll from 2013 on the celebration of Philip Roth's 80th birthday, 77 percent of like a handful of uh, book writers and critics, critics and and literary folk. Uh, dubbed Philip Roth. Seventy-seven percent of them dubbed him the greatest living American writer. Um, and I mean, I I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna say that I don't like if you if you surveyed a bunch of people now about like what was the greatest musical album. Uh-huh. I think a lot of a lot of people would be like, "Oh, Weezer," because so stop. <laughs> because they perfectly captured like their teenage angst or whatever. Like I, I don't think. I don't think we need to we need to take internet polls too seriously. No, but the, the people polled were not the internet. They were like actual like authors and stuff. I'm not Okay. This was not like click like if you think Philip Roth is cooler than uh, Stephen King. JK J- J- Rowling. He's, she's not American. <laughs> You're messing with the data. We've adopted her. No. Um so Philip Roth uh, is 81 right now. He recently, I think, retired from writing. He wrote 27 novels and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, he was born in 1933, and his first book, which was called Goodbye Columbus, which is a series of short stories published in 1960, won the National Book Award. So he's he started out swinging for the fences. You write your first book, you get you get the award for it. I, I can see why people like him. The National Book Award. Yeah. The like this is this is the <laughs> what the like, award. Oh, here you go. This is the one. This is like for books. This yeah. is the award. Good this luck. Is the national one. Good luck winning more awards, rookie. It's all downhill from here. That's not true. He won a whole bunch of other awards. <laughs> Uh, so he wrote that in 1960, and that kind of set the table for him as this uh, kind of comic, self-hating Jew author. That's I'm not I'm saying that as a like as what has been said about him. Uh, his version of the American Jew experience is filled with self-deprecation, uh, often to the point of angering Jewish people in America. Uh, when he, not long after the Goodbye Columbus hit stands, he was at a a conference or a panel at Yeshiva University with Ralph Ellison, who wrote uh, The Invisible Man, uh, and they were talking about minority writers, and a bunch of people got really upset at Philip Roth for how he treated Judaism in his books and, and Jewish people. Um, and they were supposed to be there to kind of celebrate minority writers, and he was kind of confused by how that how that all shook out. So we'll we'll come back to that. We'll come back to how he treats okay. his own religion and his own upbringing. 
so he wrote Portnoy's in 1969, and that was kind of what made him a commercial success. Uh, probably because there's lots of sex and sex stuff. Okay, and this and this book was published, I think, in 1968. Is that right? Uh, I thought it was 69, but it could be 68. I'm just no, I'm going off of it was 69. Okay, well, because okay. I'm going I'm going off of Mad Men here, where you see. You see Don Draper in season seven of Mad Men reading Portnoy's complaint. In and that's set in nineteen sixty eight. Uh, that is the last season of Mad Men is the first half of sixty nine. Okay, so it was published. And I understand in... why people wouldn't know that because I think most people stopped watching Mad Men like last season. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, the thing to know about Portnoy's is that certain sections of it were published in Esquire, the Partisan Review, and the New American Review uh, before the full novel came out in 1969 so even the initial new york times review of the book kind of mentioned that people who were into the contemporary literary scene were aware of portnoy before it even hit as a full book uh he won the pulitzer in the 90s for american pastoral uh and a whole section of roth's oeuvre that we will not cover today is uh, Nathan Zuckerman and a series of books that Nathan Zuckerman is in, uh, which includes Roth's autobiography uh, called The Facts, which includes letters between him and his own character, Nathan Zuckerman, which, sure, I guess, that's the thing you I can I mean, do. there's a, in my research on, on, um, on Roth, there's a big discussion, I guess, about the extent to which his books are autobiographical. Sure. And so the the extent to which you can you can assume that stuff that happens to Portnoy or happens to Zimmerman also happened to Roth. Yeah, I th- you can assume some of it. I mean, they were both born in the same year. Uh, they both went, you know, Roth sets per- Portnoy in New Jersey where he goes to the same high school that uh, Philip Roth went to, Weequahick High School in Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> Uh, they talk about living in Jersey City for a little while and how terrible Jersey. it is. Jersey. It's, I mean, it's less terrible now. <laughs> by, by how many orders of magnitude? I don't like. I haven't read the book, okay. so I can't say. But <laughs> uh, they get out of there. Though I'll tell you that much. They they get the heck out of Dodge. I will tell you that everybody who lives in Jersey City, like that's their greatest aspiration, <laughs> is to get out. Uh. So what else, anything else about him? He, uh, a writer that we should know, Andrew, is Saul Bellow. Do you know who Saul Bellow is? I have no idea. Great, neither do I. And a whole bunch of <laughs> English majors who are listening or librarians are like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? Uh, you just dropped a cuss bomb. Yep, I told you we would. Uh, Bellow won the Pulitzer in 67 uh, for Humboldt's Gift. Uh, was a good friend of Roth. And he met Bello in Chicago at the same time he uh, met Margaret Martinson, I believe was her name, who is Roth's first wife and is considered to be the inspiration for a number of Roth's female characters. And I do want, before we dive into the book proper, I do want to share with you a quote from author Keith Gessen about Roth and uh, his treatment of women, because I think this will kind of put the book in context. I do think he sometimes thought, as many men have also sometimes thought, that women were a foreign country. All right. 
Still, it may be said that Roth is slightly less useful in a world that is slightly more equal than the one he knew, where men and women do not stand on opposite sides of the question of sex, but arrange together, sometimes helplessly against it, where sex is less a battlefield and more of a tragedy. Roth never quite got there. Uh, I can I can see that already in Portnoy's. Um, there's a lot of talk of the conquest of women, and almost all, well, yeah, pretty much literally all of the female characters in this book are related to Portnoy's sexual uh, escapades in some fashion. Uh, and that's, you know, that's what the topic of the book is, but they are certainly, very few of them are, are treated with a very empathetic lens. Um, I feel not like to say we're... that Portnoy is a great person or anything, but right. I, I I feel like we're taking a while to get to like the meat of the book. So can you like what is the synopsis? Like how is the story told? Like, great, let's just do it. Tell me the just hit me with the basic skeleton of what we're talking about here. So and then maybe that will inform kind the, of what we're talking the about attitudes and things a little bit more. So Alexander Portnoy of the complaint um, is a young Jewish professional living in New York City, and he is the Assistant Commissioner for Human Opportunity in New York City, which is a wonderfully... (laughs) What does that even mean? (laughs) It's a wonderfully satirical title that means that he uh, helps the disadvantaged uh, find jobs and and, advocates for people uh, of... Lower social class and, and it just—it sounds minorities. like a job that you would be able to get government money for without yes. really having to define <laughs> it very well. It's a really good like series of capital letters that doesn't make any sense. Um, there are plenty of nonprofits that do ostensibly what this job is today, um, but he travels to Israel, and this happens at the end of the book, uh, in which he discovers that he is impotent and seeks the help of a psychiatrist, Doctor Otto Spielvogel. And so the entire book is Portnoy on this doctor's couch talking to him. It's all written in the first person. Uh, There's a couple chapter breaks, but not really. It's mostly big comic rants uh, that are all from Portnoy's point of view. And in the middle of paragraphs, he will say, you know, doctor, this is what's going doctor. What are we talking about? And so you get the sense the whole book is delivered to Spielvogel, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, so the first line kind of sets the tone for for where uh, Portnoy is coming from. She was so deeply embedded in my consciousness that for the first year of school, I seemed to have believed that each of my teachers was my mother in disguise. So Portnoy, at a very early age, is convinced that all of his teachers actually are his mother. So pervasive is his or is her authoritarian rule on his life that he believes that every other female authority figure that he meets is just his mother with some magic power like transforming into other people. <laughs> uh, and all of his this kind the book then kind of spins this out into an Oedipal through line for Portnoy in that his mother his relationship with his mother creates this intense uh unsatiable insatiable insatiable thank you uh shut the fuck up (laughs) (laughs) insatiable uh and unquenchable 
guilt that then gets wrapped up in his sexual uh, escapades. And, and he uses sex to kind of try and escape the what he feels is repressive Jewish upbringing, like his desire to be a good boy for his mother and his family. And all he really wants to do is be a bad boy. Uh, one of the famous quotes from the book is he wants to put the id back in yid. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> That's the worst. It's pretty fucking good. <laughs> what? <laughs> so there's something to be said that uh, in the, before he really became known as a novelist and in school and, and I think coming out of Goodbye Columbus, Roth was known among at least his peers as a bit of a stand-up comic or at least as a comedian. <laughs> so that tone of... You know, talking to a person and, and tossing in, in a line, even if it's as kind of grown worthy as id back in yid, is from that vein. Like he know he is a person delivering jokes at times, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I I think I feel like there is maybe a debate in the the American Jewish community as to the extent that they should claim Roth and his works. Yes. As like as part of that of that body because I I mean there are a lot of things stereotypically that are attributed to American Jews like they're they're I mean I'm I am engaged to somebody who is half Jewish so I'm I've been exposed to some small amount of this like Susanna's family is pretty um I don't know, like casual to atheist, I think is the spectrum that everything is on. Okay. But you can, like, if you go back two generations, like if not her parents, but her parents' parents, you can go back to the people who are maybe like not disappointed, but the people who would be really happy if she found like a nice Jewish boy to settle down with. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, and... There's even a line, I don't have it at, at my fingertips, where Portnoy says that he is living a Jewish joke. Like, his relationship to his parents is a Jewish joke. Uh, and his kind of really fervent exploration of their repression of him in everything from his, you know, somewhat absent father's commitment to overworking himself to the point of constipation, like... <laughs> kind of heightened comic constipation uh and his mother's over involvement in everything in his life uh like the time like when he first learned to use a toilet she like was helping him intimately like when he first stood to pee like yeah yeah right you're making a face and that's the face that philip roth wants you to make (laughs) so the first third of the book is this idea of the Jewish mother taken, the overbearing Jewish mother that is kind of, as you pointed out, like a uh, trope of Jewish humor, right? But then mm-hmm. Roth takes it to this really kind of nasty place where his first experience learning to pee, right, is his mom kind of tickling him to help him. His... When he's six and he won't eat his food, his mom brandishes a knife at him. Uh, when he 
gets really infatuated with masturbation and uh, masturbates so often that he kind of leaves a mark on himself and thinks it's cancer. So then instead of not masturbating anymore, he just keeps masturbating because he thinks he's going to die and wants to squeeze it all in before he dies. Squeeze it all in. He (laughs) pretends that he has diarrhea so that he can leave the dining room table to go masturbate. And his mom gets all upset that he must be out eating like hamburgers and french fries with his friends and not keeping kosher and eating dirty food, which is why he's pooping all the time. And she wants in there so that she can see the poop. So that's like that's what she's worried about is that he's going to get in like a quarter pounder with cheese yes. instead of like just jerking it all the time. Well, he's not going to tell her that she's that he's jerking it. That would he's bring not great shame. Tell her that she's that he's having a quarter pound with cheese. Like it's not a thing that you're gonna go up and to admit to your Jewish mother. Yeah, well, that's so that's that's their relationship. There's that kind of overbearing Jewishness, and to the point of like extreme sexual and and gross candor. Um, so I feel like that is part of the reason why the Jewish community at the time might have said, hey, Philip Roth, you could take a step back, please. <laughs> maybe you uh, maybe you don't need to be here. Um, and so the from there, it goes into uh, Portnoy's attempts to break out of his upbringing. And, and that's kind of part of the less ribald i mean it there's plenty of ribald parts of this story uh but thematically it's the parts that are a little more uh ambitious i would say and and higher than just sex if that makes sense sure um he ends up with this woman who is uh i don't know if they specify that she's catholic or anything i think she's just um she's a shiksa from west virginia rural west virginia <laughs> And she is a model, uh, but she ends up, she'd married a bunch of rich dudes, uh, a couple uh, rich men who who treated her poorly. And she wants to escape her kind of classic American rural upbringing and escape into the Portnoy's world. But he kind of seeks her out as a sexual partner because she is completely different from his world. Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't go well for either of them. It's just it's it's kind of crazy to me how young this picture of like the traditional American upbringing is. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I'm I am watching a lot of Boardwalk Empire right now, and that is set in like the 1920s. And you get a lot of people who are like first or second generation immigrants, and those people are maybe like two to three generations removed from us. And you just you you think about how a lot of stuff seems homogenized now. Oh yeah, oh that's total. That's that's totally part of it. And and so the, the the stuff about the era in which this book is being written, you know, the late nineteen sixties, is where you've got that sort of tension between the old school, like the the immigrant mindset and the quote-unquote american mindset where everything is kind of melting together and homogenizing to to some extent but not totally oh totally yeah i mean and and what he's writing about when he's in the earlier parts of the book where portnoy is you know younger than 13 it's still the late 30s early 40s and at that point jews were 
at least as the book tells it and, and some of my research for the book tells it, they were kind of encouraged to quietly assimilate into American life, right? They There were parts of American life that became particularly Jewish, be it, be it Hollywood or, or, or other, you know, things that have since been pretty stereotyped. Sure. But to kind of avoid some of the harsher realities coming out of Europe and other parts of the world, it was just kind of like, come on in and join the American dream, but kind of just do it. Like, don't make a big fuss a little, about it. He needs to, like, it's the American dream. <laughs> like, you gotta, <laughs> like, focus on that part. And so then that leads, at least from in Philip Roth's world, that leads to this... uh utter repression at one point in the book he says he's he's lined head to toe with repressions um and to him or at least in in the world of this book again uh being sexual is living and and if you're not doing that to its full extent and you're being hindered in that regard by whatever it is guilt or or religion or your family then you might as well be dead uh, and that leads to this, as we said, tug of war um, that is at the crux of Portnoy's complaint. Uh, some of the other stuff that you want to think about that is happening in, in the late 60s is like just general counterculture stuff that leads yes. to, you know, Vietnam protests. Uh, some of that factors into the book a little bit. Uh, we are in the throes of the civil rights movement. Uh, other well, yeah, like Martin Luther King, you have um, Robert Kennedy. Yes, yeah. You have a lot of just just a lot of bad stuff happening. Like I'm, I'm trying to imagine what the equivalent would even be today. Like who would have to be assassinated to prompt like similar self reflection on the part of American society, and it would it would have to be pretty bad. It would have right? to be really at that at the top of the ladder to to get dark, you know, to get kind of morbid about it, right? Um, but other things that, that had happened at the time were in 1969, you you know, the Beatles performed their last public performance. I'm just going That on. was in like 1966. So. I thought that was 69, on the roof. Nope, nope. Well, okay, if you're, if you're talking about on the roof. Thank sure. you. Uh, we put a man on the moon in 1969, if you believe. Yeah, no, thanks, Michael Stipe. Yep. Tell me about how they put that man on the moon. Uh, and one of the other things that factors heavily in the book is in the late 60s, we're only about 20 years past the formal establishment of Israel after World War II. Uh, and so the, in the end of the book, and like I alluded to earlier, uh, Portnoy takes a trip to Israel, and he he remarks, "Hey, we're the wasps here," which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> like he's just looking around at uh, Jewish people and remarking that they are uh, fulfilling trades and careers that are predominantly Christian or other uh, Anglo uh, jobs in America, which mm-hmm. is kind of a funny observation. But that was fairly recent at the time that that character would have been traveling there. And that's something that I, with some of the stuff that's going on in the news right now, not to stray too far away from uh, jerking it with Philip Roth, as I like to call this book. Uh, it is interesting to think about how some of this stuff, like you were saying earlier, it's only a few generations old 
And that's kind of mind-blowing whenever I take a step back and think about it. Like, over the weekend, I was in uh, rural southern New Jersey, just kind of wandering (laughs) through a random church cemetery that happened to be where we where we were that part of the afternoon and there were people there who were born in like the early 1800s who had died in the early 1900s and if you think about it that's not very long ago no not really like we have written shit from people millennia ago and here is here's someone who is kind of uh revolting against a culture that might have only been established 30 or 40 years prior to the writing of the book uh, and doing so very violently and very graphically. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's there. There is an element of that to every generation, right? Like, like every generation. I don't want to say they reject their parents' values, but they definitely evaluate their parents' values and pick which ones that they want to keep going, and they like alter the ones that they that they like, and it's it's just very. Every generation seems to some degree to be reactive to the generations that came before. Yes, very much. And so, so with with Portnoy's complaint you get you get that reaction at a very specific point in American history where people are I don't know, people are people are rejecting that like very nationalistic, very very America minded like World War II stereotype. Mm-hmm. And trying to forge ahead and and make their own identity, and that gets wrapped up in like, in in like the culture of different different immigrant groups, and it just it just it keeps it it keeps going and going, and it's 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 more stuff than I think we can touch upon in this podcast. It's, <laughs> no, and and it's worth pointing out that throughout the book, in between sexual escapades, which I want to get to in in a little bit, just to since we did the explicit tag, I do want to kind of. Tell some people some of the some of the highlights, Um, but the one of the through lines is Portnoy's desire to be American and be American like a capital A, not a Jewish American. Like there's a section where he's he's talking about um, a bunch of. Uh, Shixas, whose older brothers are the engaging, good-natured, confident, clean, swift, and powerful halfbacks for the college football teams called Northwestern and Texas, uh, Texas Christian and UCLA. Uh, their names are not Aaron, Arnold, and Marvin, but Johnny and Billy and Jimmy and Todd. You know, these are the Americans. Um, and he, there's this sense that even though they have been invited to the table, Jewish Americans are not living the same American dream as the people who've quote unquote been here since the founding fathers. And sure. and that double standard seems to be something Portnoy is living with, even as he kind of mythologizes himself as this uh, advocate for the lower class and for minorities um, that the aforementioned, uh, assistant commissioner for human opportunity bullshit um, <laughs> and kind of contrasts that with there's a wonderful moment where his parents are sending news clip, newspaper clippings of him you know at, being quoted as the assistant commissioner and then coming to his house and being like oh that's the rug you have that rug's dirty get rid of that rug 
what do you do in like classic Jewish parent put downs? Um, <laughs> and that kind of dichotomy between actually rising up and perhaps making a difference in the world and then the people you might leave behind along the way or the way that other people might bring you down despite that um seems particularly particularly uh of a culture that sure you know is not mine um certainly philip ross what are, okay what are the what are the sexy parts about port noise complaint like you always you always hear about this book being I don't even know if shunned is the word, but it has this reputation for being a sexy book. Well, in, so, in 70 and 71 in Australia, they filed obscenity charges against it and the bookseller who was selling it. In 1771? Oh, excuse me. 1970 and 19... <laughs> <laughs> In 1771, a, a tribe of time travelers... <laughs> Tried to keep it outside of the border. Well, and then Jane Austen found a copy of it, and everything went to hell from there. So, who knows? Philip Roth stepped on a butterfly, and he ruined all of literature forever, basically. <laughs> uh, so, at one point in the book, he... he God damn it. This part is gross. He jerks off... Is it about jerking it? Yeah, it is. Okay. So he's talking about common sense because he talks about how he jerked off on a bus and <laughs> he's talking about whether or not he had common sense to prevent it. And he says, common sense, you think? Common decency? My right mind, as they say, coming to the fore? Well, where is this right mind on that afternoon I came home from school to find my mother out of the house and our refrigerator stocked with a big purplish piece of raw liver? I believe that I already confessed to the piece of liver that I bought in a butcher shop and banged behind a billboard on the way to a bar mitzvah lesson. Well, I wish to make a clean breast of it, your holiness, that she, it, wasn't my first piece. My first piece I had in the privacy of my own home, rolled around my cock in the bathroom at 3.30, and then had again on the end of a fork at 5.30, along with the other members of that poor innocent family of mine. Wait, did he fuck a liver? So, did he fuck a piece of liver? Now you know the worst thing I have ever done, he says. I fucked my own family's dinner. God <laughs> damn it. Ban the book. Don't put it in libraries. Kids can't uh, read this. This is from... right up there with Harry Potter. <laughs> this is almost as bad as Harry Potter. At least there's no witches in this book. Fuck. <laughs> so yeah, it's a I don't know. It was a weird I haven't read So when we read the, when we read 50 Shades, right? Let's talk about this real quick. Okay. When we read 50 Shades, it was clear that the book was trying to turn me on. It was trying <laughs> its hardest to turn me on. Port Noise is not doing that. It is grossing me out. It is the American pie of respected American literature. Eugene Levy is there <laughs> shoving his eyebrows in your face. And so I don't know. Have you ever read anything like that? Anything that or seen something that is like it's sexual, but it's not sexy or it's about. Right. Like it, it's, it's trying to rub the undesirable parts <laughs> of being a sexual. Yeah. And I didn't mean to do that, but that's fine. It's trying to rub the undesirable parts of being a sexual being in your face. Yeah. Basically. 
Well, and and the the conflict that comes with being a sexual being, you know, one of the one of the struggles we had with Fifty Shades was, you know, judging the writing without judging people who might be into that sort of thing. Right. 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 I don't like. I don't even. I don't even want to judge Portnoy for his, like his his liver escapades. Like I don't. <laughs> don't know that's kind of he did let his family eat it that's pretty messed that, up okay that that's bad that's not great no but like i just want i want people to find what they like and find what like makes them happy i don't i don't know like there are there are so many double standards about sexuality in our culture anyway yes about i don't know like there's just like I don't even know how to how to articulate what I'm what I'm thinking about, but well, and and something that would it's just like that that the, there's like if you like it, say you look at like the most popular sitcoms, like your Big Bang theories and your Friends and and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and you look at the amount of sexual tension and like conversation that happens around sex in those shows, and then you look at the almost puritanical. Like, the amount of sex that our public figures are allowed to engage in, the amount of sex that, like, I don't know, that, that, that if you are in a committed relationship, whether that's married or not, like, there there are people who are watching you who are going to police the, the amount of sex you are having or, like, the people you hang around with or the, the sex you appear to be having. It's just, it's, it's this weird halfway spot between... The sexual revolution that was happening when Portnoy's complaint was being written and like this weird and I think maybe uniquely American thing where you're not really encouraged to talk about it in public. Well, yeah, and you're not supposed to talk about or at least I mean, people are doing it more and more, but it's not common wisdom or or, or accepted uh, wisdom about how goddamn sexualized everything is. Everything, even like teenagers. Yeah. Like, thanks, Disney Channel. <laughs> like, <laughs> welcome to this week's uh, segment of Kids Today. Um, yes, it's pretty gross, and we don't like we don't have a vocabulary that everyone can agree on to talk about it. And that that has not changed since this book, I don't think. You know, this book is purposefully shocking, and some of the escapades we've talked about on the episode are are still gross. <laughs> I think that's well, I think to you, Roth's you credit look at in it, a way. Yeah, it's like it's 1968. That's I think you know 1968, 1969 are like the the hangover from the summer of love. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm and looking at the the aspect of the sexual liberation movement, where you've got to deal with like what your parents think and what society thinks, and like the the um, I don't know the part where maybe you could have caught something from it. <laughs> there's a there's a section where where he worries about getting syphilis, and you know with. In the tone of the rest of the book, it kind of spirals into this anxious nightmare. Um, 
but that is a really real thing and, and i don't know there's it comes in waves like depending on what society is currently fearing about sex but there's always something to be afraid of yeah vis-a-vis sex um and I'll, i guess i'll close our discussion of of portnoy's libido uh <laughs> with just mentioning uh the guardian book blog uh five years ago ran a like a little editorial on the book portnoy at 40 40 years old um and one of the <clears throat> one of the quotes it pulled out is about uh, a rare moment of non-obscenity with regard to the flaming libido saying that uh, portnoy explains the flaming libido represents the desire continually burning within for the new the wild the unthought of and if you can imagine such a thing the undreamt of yeah and I, I mean talking about sexual relationships and the new is like a whole nother thing yes because that is i think what breaks a lot of long-term relationships up is just like it becomes a routine and i mean you know different people will disagree to what extent this is true but you know the, the human beings are animals at at their root mm-hmm. and maybe like maybe experiencing the same thing over and over and over again is is not what your body wants or like not what excites you and so i don't know you, you you've got to start thinking about like what is novel and like what is exciting and that becomes a part of your like sexual calculus i don't know well and there's there's a certain mystery to it all and there's always that kind of what else is there mystery yeah, um, yeah, yeah that is a logical extension of one of my other i won't read it but there's another great passage where during that just preceding that part where portnoy hits himself in the eye um he's quizzing his friend on how sex happens or how oral sex happens just the litany of does he not does he not know this was previous to to his like actual understanding of like but it's all the details like do her pants stay on does she does she actually does she actually kneel what are the lights on are the lights off what are we is is there music playing what is how does she move what is she is she saying anything like it's the granular wonder at something people have been doing for hundreds of years that only a, a 12 year 12 or 13 year old can muster because um, nobody tells you how that works nobody tells you how any of it works except portnoy <laughs> And none of it works too well. I guess that's Portnoy's complaint. I think we can wrap it there. I guess. Sex is confusing, man. And it's in your face and it's gross. How do you feel about that? Gross. Pretty gross? Mostly, yeah. If people want to tell us their favorite sex stories, Andrew, but keep them PG, where should they write them to? You don't even have to keep them PG. (laughs) Like, whatever. Um, You can... You can email us at overduepod at gmail.com. We also have a Twitter feed up at twitter.com slash overduepod and a Facebook feed up at facebook.com slash overduepod. Um, we try to check all of those at least a couple times a week and respond to whatever is going on in them. So that's that's probably the best way to get in touch with us. Craig, if, if people want to read the books that we are reading, what, what should they do? Tell me. They should head to OverduePodcast.com where they can click on the Amazon links to some of the books that we've read and are reading. Uh, you can 
purchase things there. You can uh, purchase other things other than books there and uh, send a little bit away to help defray costing and, and book costs. A little bit of paper. Uh, you could. Uh, one of the things I saw is you could buy a, a dinosaur outfit for your dog if you wanted. That was tweeted uh, my way. And I will be purchasing one of those as soon as I get a dog. Uh, so <laughs> you can, when you're done buying uh, dog suits, you can listen to our old episodes at OverduePodcast.com. You can also find links to our RSS feed. And mo- most importantly, uh, for those in the Apple ecosystem, our iTunes page, uh, where you can rate and review us, which we'd greatly appreciate. Uh, be kind with all our sex talk this week. Uh, but if you got really excited by it, no need to hold back in your review. And there's also no need to tell us about it. It's, just tell us about it. Just keep it keep it secret. Keep it safe. Okay. Andrew, <laughs> to you, is it a secret what you're reading next week? Um, what I'm reading next week is Orange is the New Black, the book the book version. Oh, cool. Yeah, and um I figure like I've I've thought about what about the show that I want to spoil and what I want to keep not spoiled? And I, I don't think I'm going to have to read too much, but I, I mean, I don't think I'm going to have to spoil too much, but I think that um, consider like the first season of the show, Fair Game, okay. to be spoiled, that seems fair. but not the, not the second season. And I think we'll probably also talk about some of the writing that has occurred in reaction to this, the book and the show. That seems very fair. And just like the reaction to the book and the show. So if you have thoughts on the show, uh, send them in so that we can kind of do what we did with Holly's comments and uh, pass them along on the show. I also want to thank Lee and uh, Robert and uh, Sean and anybody else who's been uh, sending us messages via Twitter or Facebook because we we greatly appreciate that. And uh, it makes us feel feel good. Uh, and we hope that we've made you feel good. Right, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, like, Lee Lee in particular is talking about how she's listening to our back catalog, and she is quoting things that we apparently said to us, and I just, I, I, I don't remember. I don't remember saying those <laughs> well, things. And Kara pointed out that last week we got into a little bit of a therapy session for me, so <laughs> thanks for everyone uh, to, to listening for that. Yeah, I mean that that that's what we're about. You're just you're just here to hang out with us. Um so we will be back next week with Orange is the New Black and in the meantime everybody you should try really hard to be happy.